Welcome to FinTech Brews and News, brought to you by Central Payments and Falls FinTech. I'm Nikki Rohde. And I'm Trent Sorby. Founders, co-founders, payments professionals, and, well, just people who love brews. This is a place to get a behind-the-scenes look at unique partnerships and ways to bridge the financial gap between banking, startups, and the entire fintech industry. Whether it's a beer or coffee or something else, there's certain to be a brew in every episode. After all, how do we function in this space without it? Each episode, you're sure to take away some good stuff going on in the financial technology space. So without further ado, let's grab a brew. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of FinTech Brews and News. I am Nikki Rohde. And I'm Trent Sorby. And today... For those of you who are watching, can notice that a few of us have uh, matching shirts on, and yes, that is in fact on purpose. So we've got two very, very special guests with us today. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Um, so Becky Rasmussen. Yeah. Hi, my name is Becky Rasmussen, Executive Director of Call to Freedom. We're an anti-human trafficking group that offers supportive services to those that have been victimized by sex or labor trafficking. Hi, Mandy Cooper. I am the Chief Risk Officer at Central Payments. I've been in the payments industry for 25 years, focused on anti-money laundering, fraud, um, regulatory compliance, and risk. Today's episode is really important on a number of different levels. So we're going to talk about uh, what it means to intersect between financial services and human trafficking. So Mandy, starting a little bit with you, talk about... um, when you look back at your 25-some years, what is, uh, what is that passion that comes out in you about um, finding those types of connections between human trafficking, labor trafficking in any way, uh, and financial services? Yeah, it really started um, at my former employer. Um, Backpage was really prominent mm-hmm. in the um, industry related to their adult um, ads. And we focused on that building, trying to build rules around detecting that and what that looked like. Um, And then after coming to Central Payments, I became aware of um, the Call to Freedom Community Breakfast. And so that was something, uh, attending that and going to their uh, lunch and learns and stuff like that was really piqued my interest in in really thinking about what we could do from a financial services company to detect this, prevent, and try to prevent it, really helping, you know, the victims and survivors that we see come through um, using our our cards or financial services. Because the the reality is, and Mandy, we talk all the time about this, is that this is an issue that really strikes at the core of what we do and what other companies do that are involved in financial services, particularly those of us that are involved in electronic payments. Um, these are products that um, that we know are being used by uh, victims um, and then also their perpetrators um, for human trafficking and, and all sorts of criminal behavior. And so, look, I think it's you're you're too modest in your background. Um, you are an expert in this field um, as it relates to financial services and and identifying human trafficking. And and I think that you know this is a great topic for us to spend time on because it does cross over to our world. And and we do have to think and be smart about the way we offer products and 
and, and detecting patterns that, you know, are clearly um, patterns that, that look suspicious to us. Talk a little bit uh, about that um, in terms of, you know, the general pattern of behavior that you're looking for as you call over millions and millions of transactions and trying to pick out those that, you know, trip an alert that we say, hey, we should take a look at this one because this is tripping some sort of behavior pattern that might um, give rise to a human trafficking case. What are some of those things that pop? Sure. Um, so we use automated AML monitoring systems and work really on identifying the you know, the various merchants that we see. So it's it's ever-changing, and you have to stay on top of that, really adjusting your rules to identify the, the changes and the trends, right? So human traffickers are very smart. I mean, they're very smart individuals, and they know how to spread their activity across multiple different payment methods. And so it's really pulling all that information together, looking for online advertisements, right? Hotel transactions, travel, um, nail salons, massage parlors, like all those various things and piecing that together um, to really to really pull those in and look. And also the time of day really matters, right? It's, it's abnormal patterns because you establish a t- what your typical card spend is and then look for anomalies. And it's it's not just, I mean, we have built human trafficking rules within our system, but we've also built um, travel rules and money laundering rules because you really got to follow the money, right? So uh, those are the key pieces that we look for. And, and they overlap too. What can start as a human trafficking case turns into money laundering because that's effectively Absolutely. what you're doing is you're trying to clean illegal funds and making them look legitimate. Yeah. You know, you, you you touched on a lot of things there in terms of the behavior patterns. What's what's the one that you think is probably most frequent that we identify and quickly try to to, to dig into and understand a little more closely? Like I know, I know, for example, you're always watching transaction behavior that's happening in opposite ends of the country that, you know, there's no way the person can get from California to New York, you know, in in the 10 minutes between transactions. Talk a little bit about that. Right. Yeah. Like the the funnel accounts. So setting up the accounts using the victim's information and really moving that through. So cash loads onto the card followed by immediate spend pulled out into, you know, out of state locations it is is a key identifier, but also really the the online ads is a big thing too, and they're ever changing. And so, like in 2017, Backpage shut down their adult services section, and and that was great overall to get that off of there. But it also impacted the financial services industry because then we no longer had that identifier, right? We knew they were using that. So that was something to pull into our rules. So now they're, I mean, it's ever changing. And so that adult services websites, you know, is very fluid. And so pulling that in and really monitoring for that activity is a big piece of it as well. Yeah. Cause the systems have to learn the behavior too. Behavior modifies, back page goes away. How do the models adjust themselves? What's the AI embedded into it? That's really looking for different types of transaction behavior with the absence of of, of back page, strange merchant category codes and, and all of those things. So, um, yeah, it's, it's super fascinating. I look at it a little bit like, uh, um, sort of like your spam filter on your email, only that it'll never get every piece of spam. And sometimes you're going to get a false positive that's not spam, but you're just trying to build those models to get more and more effective to really pull out, um, the ones that, that deserve to be looked at. And, and you and your team, um, are doing that all the time. So, uh, kudos. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about Call to Freedom. Yeah, let's talk about mm-hmm. Call to Freedom. Becky, if you would give a bit more backdrop into some of um, your history in business, and then why did you leave all of that to find this organization called to Freedom? Yeah, um, for me, this is a call. In uh, 2015, I felt the call in prayer to get involved. And so, yes, I was in the business world. I was in marketing. I was in nonprofit. I have a very diverse background. And I just felt this prompting and had some interaction with human trafficking organizations prior to that. And I ended up getting connected with Call to Freedom, which was not a nonprofit. It was a program under another nonprofit and started just on their board, um, ended up in Sturgis, South Dakota in 2015 and had an encounter with a young girl um, in Sturgis that forever changed my life. What was and the event? Talk a little bit about folks that are from South Dakota may not yeah, know the Sturgis event. Sturgis is probably one of the largest attended events in, in the world. Um, 500,000 people come to one event over a course of two weeks. You know, we have sting operations that happen at the Super Bowl and there's 60,000 people. And so we have a lot of activity. And anytime you have a lot of activity, you have the opportunity for organized crime, be guns, drugs, and trafficking, human trafficking as well. And so Sturgis, um, we were just doing outreach in Sturgis, South Dakota, and I identified a young girl. Um, she looked very vulnerable, and I just struck a conversation with her. Um, it was about 10 minutes, and in that 10 minutes, I identified a very vulnerable, scared young lady, um, but I didn't know her story. The next day, um, the feds were doing some sting operations. We connected with a uh, called Free International and what they do is they go into large events and they do they take a book of individuals under the age of 18 that could be missing. And so in this book, they had done about a four-state radius of missing kids. So all of the individuals that were in this book were under the age of 18, um, usually about 12 to 18 years of age. And they pass that book out and they say, you know, these kids could potentially be here. They could be missing. They could be trafficked. There could be a lot of different situations that are happening. And he hands me the book and I, there she was. And um, the funny thing is, is that that was what, gosh, and that's not funny, but it was years ago. And I got a call about two weeks ago from a girl and she was part of with this Marissa gal. And she said, I want you to continue to tell the story. Absolutely. Because she was there. And um, there was eight of us there that were in a ring and we were all Marissa's because that was our code name mm-hmm. in Sturgis. Wow. And so you can't tell me this isn't happening. Um, and so that birthed um, the call to um, then transition Calder Freedom to me. So we actually then uh, created a nonprofit and became an operating 501c3 in January of 2016. And we started with volunteers and survivors started coming forward. Why I appreciate what you guys do is because there's a stat, one to 3% of victims ever get out of human trafficking situations. If victims do not feel safe or their basic needs are met, they will stay in that situation because it's worse for them to come out. Backpage, when that left, it affected law enforcement, it affected you know payment systems, it affected so many people because it went under the black web. It made it deeper and harder to find. And so this is why this work is so important 
is because victims don't come out and self-identify. A lot of times that grooming process is done and they think that they have chosen to be in that situation and they're manipulated. Um, grooming processes can take up to six months where we've worked with victims to 18 months before they're pulled into human trafficking situations. We've had trafficking victims who were married to their to their perpetrator and then trafficked after that marriage. And so um, working in collaboration and identifying victims and breaking that silence is so important. And so at Call to Freedom, obviously we're very much advocates, but we also provide services to those that are that are victimized. And our number one referral source in the state of South Dakota are other victims. They know that they can be safe. They know that they can get out of those situations and they know that somebody um, understands the dynamic of safety and logistics. Um, they feel more comfortable uh, coming out of those situations. And so we, last year we had a 47% increase from 2020 to 2021. From January to February, we are on pace to double um, just the first two months already. And so what we're seeing is we're breaking the silence over human trafficking Amen. within our communities and our state. Victims are saying, I can come out. There is a place that I can be safe. And mm -hmm. so that's why this collaboration is so important. And we're grateful for all Mandy does, as well as central payments. Yeah, so are we. And, and I tell Mandy all the time, let's, let, as it relates to call to freedom, let's do more. Let's do more. Um, Mandy, I, I think Becky touched on something there that I, I'll come back to. You know, it's, it's clear that as much as it drives us crazy that products that we offer might be used for purposes like we're talking about today, there is a little bit of a positive in it, in that electronic payments leave breadcrumbs everywhere, right? Cash doesn't leave a breadcrumb. Electronic payments leave lots of information, geographic information, um, all of the things that's embedded in a payment transaction. Talk about how that can actually be used for good as you think about investigations. I mean, as you talk to law enforcement around, hey, these are the things we're seeing, talk about the level of data that we can provide that obviously we couldn't if it's in cash or crypto or you know, running on the dark web that, you know, other forms of payment. Can talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, there really isn't, you know, a, a financial mechanism that isn't touched by or used by the traffickers. So, I mean, crypto, cash, yes. Um, prepaid, credit, all of it, debit. Um, it's, it's important because the amount of information that we do have, it could be, you know, all the demographic information. So their name and address and phone number, all of that, because you, you have to go through for in most cases, you go through um, verification before opening these accounts. So they're not just IP you know, addresses. Yeah, one and done. That. Yep. So we capture device ID, IP address, um, and then all the transaction information, um, all the calls into customer service, all the conversations, all of that information. Um, when we do detect and suspect there's human trafficking going on, um, we file what is called suspicious activity reports with FinCEN. And FinCEN's come out with multiple different advisories and guidance related to red flags um, associated with human trafficking and human smuggling. Um, so we look at that and study that and, you know, implement that into our rules too. And um, by providing that information when filing the SAR, 
um, checking the human trafficking checkbox that's now on the SAR form, uh, we give all that information to law enforcement. And so we, we do see cases where they'll reach out to us. Um, and, and that makes a difference because they don't have to subpoena the information. A SAR was filed and they can go and search that database and pull down all that information. Because so often these things, it is a ring, right? Oh yeah. It, what, what we could be seeing in our portfolio, uh, could be just a small piece of a broader ring that could be in other portfolios with other bank issuers mm-hmm. across the country yep. that it takes that SAR or multiple SARs to put it together and say, okay, now I'm, I'm starting to get a better picture of what's really going on here. Right, exactly. Becky, let's talk about how um, big of a deal this is on a quantity scale. Sometimes I think um, if people aren't necessarily as familiar with with human trafficking, how, how is that growing? How is that expanding? Mm-hmm. So when you have the ability to sell a human being over and over again, you have less overhead where you have drugs, you have, you know, obviously you can get possession distribution. Um, you also have to pay for that drug and keep paying for that drug and then you distribute it. Um, whereas a human, you can sell them over and over again and you have very little overhead and this is organized crime. Of I course. mean, these guys are probably not just involved in human trafficking. They're got, guns, uh, drugs, it's all intertwined is what we're finding when we work cases. And so it's all about the money. The more money they can make, the more profit that's in it for these organized crimes, the more they're going to facilitate it. And so these cases are very hard to prove. That's why that collaboration of information and evidence is so important because they do a very good job of making sure that those victims are not good crime victims when they get on the stand. So control is getting them addicted to drugs, introducing seem to mental health beatings, um, that coercion, that mind game that's played with the victims. And so when they go on the stand, you know, they don't necessarily look like a good crime victim. And these guys are very good at doing that. So that additional evidence and that collaboration of evidence and putting those together is so important because the last thing we want to do is put a, a victim on the stand to face their perpetrator and say, all right, you know, tell everything that happened to you. It's re-victimizing. And so us working together on those other evidence evidence-based collection is super important because it also protects victims in that process. One of the things we see too is the underlying value of the victim's identity. So um, trafficker, um, and to your point, is involved in probably a lot of illegal activities. Their name is in a database somewhere, right? Their identity for purposes of forming businesses, opening bank accounts, you know, all those sorts of things is probably a bit tarnished. So talk a little bit about the value of a clean identity in the victim and what they do with that. Um, I think to, to talk about that topic, um, when you say a clean, uh, in that these organized crimes uh, do forced labor as well. So they are taking these victims and we call it forced criminality. You know, they're taking the fall for a lot of what these organized crimes are doing. And so they were forced into that situation where we've had victims where they've formed LLCs with their social security number to do money laundering. And so that victim now is not just being sold for sex, their name, their social is being used for this money laundering as well. And so if they are no longer able to produce in one area, they'll move the victim to another area. And so it's really hard for those individuals to go on with life after um, because um, forced criminality is something that I'm very passionate about. We're in the prisons, we're in the jails, we're reaching girls and and we're finding they're taking distribution and drug charges for their trafficker. And we're not asking the questions to identify that this person is not uh, a criminal, that they're a victim of a crime. And, and- And just to pick up on that, 
you're really talking about the worst form of identity theft. It's one thing if any of us are a victim of identity threat theft and some accounts are opened. We're we're not as vulnerable. You're talking about the most vulnerable people um, that you know that that find themselves in a horrible situation and, and then really have nowhere to turn. I'd love to hear more about what you've done to try to help them expunge those records. Some of the legislation is being done to sort of clean the slate for them. Yeah, we um, we work a lot with pardoning in the state on a federal level. It's a little bit harder um, because you um, some of that process is a little revictimizing. Um, so it depends on where the survivor is and where they're at in their journey. And sometimes identity could be expunged and vacating their record, or identity might look different to a survivor. So it's really their choice in the journey of what they want to do in creating that new identity or the identity that was stolen from them. And so in that process, um, you know, we can go in front of a judge, but it's a, it's a process. And I think uh, we have to realize that, yeah, it's great we're expunged and vacating, but in order to have a survivor who is strong enough to go through that process is, is definitely something that is up to that survivor as well. Um, we've looked at that federal expunge and vacate, which is still a process is a process um, that we think we need to kind of revisit and have them kind of revamp it before we have some of our survivors go through that process. Mandy, it'll be interesting as we think about, you know, translating, you know, Becky's experience back into our world a little bit, as we think about new forms of identity verification that, that aren't simply, I know the social security number and the date of birth. Um, but now all of a sudden you have visual forms of identity verification and, and all those sorts of better ways to sort of try to identify situations where you might have all the information that matches what the database says. Um, but something still seems strange, things we can do to try to, to try to find situations where it's really, a the victim's information being provided instead of the victim themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there's a lot of different identity tools out there, um, non-documentary. So a lot of the victims obviously don't have their birth certificate, a driver's license, anything. So documentary review to walk into a bank and try to get a, a an account is almost impossible because they have nothing to to prove they are who they are, right? So um, we do we utilize non-documentary methods, which gathers that information, and there's stuff being improved all the time. Oh, yeah, right? facial recognition yep. and all that Biometrics stuff. and yep, that would require a person to sort of be there, right? Um, versus somebody else, I guess. Yep. Besides um, some of those behind-the-scenes tools, what are some other tools or strategies that, whether it's a financial tool or, Becky, in your world, when you just identify somebody who looks vulnerable, what are some tools and strategies people can do to look for uh, ways they can help combat human trafficking? Good question. I mean, really, really putting measures in place to monitor for this activity. Like, from a financial industry perspective, Financial institutions are the ones who filed the most SARS with FinCEN. That information then is able to be accessed by law enforcement. I mean, it, it helps this situation overall, right? And, and then, Becky, how does that translate to your world? So we have to activate on a federal level in order to bring such as the books to an event like Sturgis and things like that, right? Yeah, I think if I was to say one thing, you know, because I'm not a financial person, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, we've worked enough on those cases, I would say to this community, get educated. Mm -hmm. 
um, when we're doing going in and we're doing 10 presentations a week and we're doing prevention with youth, they begin to self-identify. And what I'm telling you is that victims don't come out and say, hey, I'm a trafficking victim. They look for people like Mandy doing her work that help identify their situation. And so for the community, get educated, see what it looks like. If you got a neighbor who has a lot of traffic going back and forth, you got young kids coming in and they look like they're in a controlled situation, your job is to report that and to make sure that you're saying there's suspicious activity at this house or in this business and, and reporting that and letting the feds and, and our local law enforcement do what they do best and investigate that. And that's where that trail comes from is that you really need that trail of reporting because this these guys are very good at what they do. They know how to cover their trail really well. Um, but they're also, I've realized that there is this arrogance with it mm. that we're untouchable. Um, and I really believe in my heart as I see you guys wearing these shirts and saying, end it. I believe that this community, our communities come together, they get educated, our voice becomes louder than the voice of organized crime, that we begin to get innovative ways to be able to interject and, and, and help survivors and give it a voice. I think we can make a difference. And so if I'm to say that, community get educated, attend what it looks like, warning signs. I'm sure that's probably how Mandy got, you know, others that had gotten involved with this fight, they didn't think it looked the way that it did. And so community get educated, attend one of our luncheons, um, you know, you can go online, Zoom, we have those monthly and we would love to educate our community. If you're a school, what we're seeing now is the school saying, we want you to come in and do prevention. Youth now with the social media targets. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you COVID hit, you saw a 250% increase on perpetration online. Now you're talking about potential, maybe sexual exploitation, or you're talking about that leads into trafficking. It usually starts with sexual exploitation, grooming them to ultimately pull them into trafficking situations. So prevention is our best key to make sure that victims don't become victims. And it's that's a really good, I mean, that's a really good, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, point like COVID-19 and the impact that that had on this specifically. So 90% of the world's schools were shut down, right? So a lot of times, you know, students will be identified by somebody at the school. That's their lifeline. You lost an identity lost opportunity that. or identification opportunity. Exactly. Traffickers are very good about finding <clears throat> vulnerabilities. So everybody talks about vulnerabilities in individuals. They'll find vulnerabilities within legislation, within communities, within banking, within um, environments like COVID, and they will capitalize on it because it's a moneymaker. And you so know, being aware of vulnerabilities in general, I think is key. They bring it to your point is that there's a level of arrogance among the trafficker and there is a certainly a level of sophistication. Um, uh, I would not feel good if transactions I'm doing and I am the trafficker with Mandy Cooper on the case um, scrubbing data. Um, that would not be a warm, fuzzy feeling knowing that uh, that she and the team are, 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 are watching. This podcast reaches um, throughout the the entire nation. So if there are other communities that have organizations similar to Call to Freedom, what what would you what would your plea be? What would be the action for those? Is there an opportunity for them to intersect with you? How does that look? Yeah, I mean, trafficking um, usually is we call transit trafficking. It goes to communities. So we talk about events. You know, um, the girls from Sturgis were coming from WeFest. 
you know, I just found that out that they were traveling from this, this transit through communities. And so it's very important for us to collaborate in this process. We actually have a Midwest task force that we've started with North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Montana, because they're traveling between those communities because this is, they go where the money is, they go where the events are. And so usually uh, victims don't stay in one area unless it's familial trafficking, which is trafficked by your own family. And so trafficking has many different faces and forms, but collaboration is really the key to combating this because if we begin to work in silos, you can't break and, and overlap and, and victims it's, it's survivors see that, you know, I can't tell you how many survivors I've worked with. I'm like, why can't you guys work together? <laughs> you know, and, and just in general with nonprofits and entities and they see that and, and it builds confidence with survivors when they see um, us working together as a unit. And I think it's important from a law enforcement perspective as well that, you know, they make, they have to have those basic needs met. They have to have housing. They have to have somebody who's going to help navigate some of that mental health counseling they have to have support in order to testify. And so we need to work together in that collaboration to make sure that we're providing all the needs of victims and to safely get them out of those situations. Because, you know, oftentimes the piece we see or the piece anyone else sees is just one piece in a really complicated jigsaw puzzle, right? And so somebody's got to be putting the pieces together to have enough information that there's something to act upon in many cases. So it, I, it's an unbelievable, um, you know, it's an unbelievable task. It's very task. difficult for a victim to get out once they're in. Yeah. They control every aspect of their life, from their financial to their birth certificate to, I've used your name, you'll never be able to get a house. I mean, to drugs, to, that's their goal is to control every aspect of their life. Imagine being in that situation and finding hope. Well, that's what I, I'd love to highlight a little bit about what you're doing. There's a preventative bit, which is beautiful and super important. And once some Somebody is turning from victim to survivor. What does Call to Freedom tangibly do to take somebody from victim to survivor? Because we all want to talk about Marissa's house. Yeah. 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 So that, and that's part of what we do. Um, safety is key. Um, you know, one of the things we think, wow, they're in a, a shelter, they're in a housing. That doesn't mean that a victim feels safe. And so we're really identifying what does safety look like to this person? Does that mean you can stay in Sioux Falls? We've moved victims nine states away where we've collaborated with another program because that person wow. did not feel safe in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Wow. And now they're doing great, was one of our first survivors we worked with, to making sure that those basic needs are met. Um, do they have housing? Do they have clothing? Do they have food? Um, because that's another form of control by their trafficker. You'll never eat. You won't get a job. Um, and when you feel like you're not going to be successful, you're just going to end up getting re-recruited back into those situations and the repercussions are horrible for them. And so we provide those basic needs and then safety. And then once that's identified, what are your next steps? Because we're a part of their journey. So is that housing? Is that education? Is that getting a job? Um, so we address all of those needs from mental health to addiction, if they're struggling with that, to Marissa's house where it's supportive living. And we're just opening our new Marissa's house in, yay, yay. Um, April 1st. Mm -hmm. And we are able to reunite survivors with their children. Wow. A lot of times in 
in that process, they don't look like good parents and people haven't identified that, that they're a trafficking victim. Um, they think it's other things that are happening and they've lost their children in that process. And so as survivors were doing well, um, we started to identify that they wanted to be a mom again. They wanted to be reunified with their kids. And it was really hard because financially, that's difficult. Support-wise, they've never, most of them have never had a good, um, you know, good example of what a family, a healthy family looks like. So how do we break that cycle? We break the cycle not only for that individual, but also for their children. And so um, we are reunifying families. So we have um, 12 units. So we're starting small, um, but it's full. Um, We're opening April 1st and we have three, three bedrooms, three, two bedrooms, and then uh, efficiency or one bedroom apartments. And so they're going to have their children live with them, and we're going to help teach them parenting skills, help get their budgeting um, jobs in place. Um, our goal is to connect them so much in the community that they don't need us anymore. Yeah. And so that they have a program, they have a structure. They could be there six months. They could be there two years. Trauma looks different. So one of the things I've been very, um, you know, very purposeful about is to make sure that there's not a timeline because trauma, I've had individuals been trafficked for three months, and I had a woman and the walk through the doors at age 63 and she'd been trafficked for over 50 years of her life. So trauma looks very different and it depends on the victimization. And so we want to be able to support a survivor in that journey, however that looks. When they're able to um, reunite with their children, what does that do to the success rate you enjoy? I would think it would be tremendous motivation to stay on the path, right? I've, I've got, or I can see a path towards getting my kids back. Um, that seems like a tremendous motivator. Yeah. It's those victories mean so much to them because in that situation, there was, it was hopeless. They didn't even think they would get out of their trafficking situation. And we have one that we've worked with and got her place. She's a super, uh, supervisor at her place of work. Now, um, her goal was to be reunified with her three children and she was out of her trafficking situation working with us about a year and a half now and she just got reunified with her kids and we worked with the child protection services and those entities and um, now she's like all right time to get my degree and so for some people that's a reality for others that have experienced trauma it may be just getting a part-time job getting disability because they don't have that ability um, and then being reunified with their kids and so um, motivators look different to every survivor, um, but to have their children back and have that opportunity for family again, um, that is definitely one of the coolest parts that we get to be a part of. Um, and we're really excited when we open the doors to see their faces in this brand new facility and they're with their children. And the staff is like, we get to go like, I'll watch this every time they open their apartment door because that's what brings oh. us joy. Well, the dignity that they now can feel as a human being is yeah. gotta be a beautiful thing to witness. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. You know, hope is a, an amazing thing. Um, I remember I was in the office one day and there was a young girl who was, um, that we were working with and she goes, Hey, and I don't say this to build myself up. Um, but she said, Hey, can I, can I go meet her? And so she was talking about me and she came up and she goes, I just want to say thank you. And I'm sorry. And in this, I, I was like, what was that Lord? I'm a faith girl. And he goes, they have hope Mm. and hope looks different to each individual. And our goal is to provide hope to those that seem like hopeless situations. And it isn't just about call to freedom. It's about a community saying no more to this and saying, we believe you and we're going to support you and you can get out of these situations. So 
Yeah, it's dignity, hope, and it's it's a beautiful thing to see somebody recreate their life. Well, look, I mean, I think I look at the calendar every year when the Call to Freedom Breakfast is coming up, and it gets a big circle on my calendar and everybody's calendar around here because it is a it is a wonderful event um, that you put on, and you can tell this community, and I'm sure lots of communities across the country, are just are beginning to understand how rampant this problem is. I mean, eyes are being opened and call to freedom. I think if of the many great things you do, you know, one of the things I think is that you've done a fantastic job of educating this community um, on what we need to be mindful of and the support that, that these victims need. And it is a unique problem and, um, and it's a complicated problem. And so um, I, I think you guys have just done such a wonderful job and then you're just such an asset to this community. Thank you. And I have to do a shout out to the team. They make me look oh. really good. <laughs> you do have a great, great team we for have sure. Great team, a wonderful group of girls who are very passionate about this and one guy. So we need more guys on our team. Hatred. Hatred. Say Mandy, so kind of as we kind of wrap this up a little bit, I'm curious if I am an aspiring um, anti-fraud, anti-money laundering, anti-human trafficking expert like you are. Like, I want to be the Mandy Cooper someday. What would you, where would you go? Where would you send them to say, look, if if you want to brush up on this, if you want to learn, you know, how we go about um, combating this problem from, from a financial services standpoint, what would you recommend to them? Multiple different things. You have, I mean, you have FinCEN and all their guidance. You have online, you know, webinars and tool tools, um, education and training. Um, the industry groups like Call to Freedom who, who do education and come into the office. You guys came into our office so that you could train the team on specific identifiers. All those things like learn about what you can do to learn more about human trafficking because there's a wealth of tools out there, um, education material. Well, and peer groups too. You yes. interact with peers. I mean, that, one yep. of the important things about this whole thing is that, you know, we have a lot of companies here locally that that do the same thing we do for the most part. Mandy has done a fantastic job of fostering relationships, and I think all of the banks have done a great job of fostering relationships because we know it's a high probability if we see something suspicious, it may very well um, be uh, be uh, prevalent with someone else. And so that cooperation among you and your peers is a big factor in this thing. Yeah, the, the IPA, they do a lot of um, good things around innovative payment association um they do you know webinars and trainings and you can collaborate and share information like sharing information just like you said trent we have we have pieces of what we see on our programs our cards but when you're able to talk to the other financial institutions that also do the same kind of thing and share the information of you know the new merchants that are being used the new trends or typologies that are occurring what they see or what we see and sharing that information is very valuable. Because the tricks are always moving. I mean, the tricksters exactly. are always using new ways to try to stay ahead. Yeah, and once they get, you know, caught and stopped on one financial institution's accounts, they move to the next. Right. And so collaboration is very important. Becky, you said earlier that other victims are often your biggest kind of referral source, if you will. And I think I would put words in Mandy's mouth here that it would be uh, a gift if financial institutions were some of your biggest kind of connection points as well. And so collaboration, education, and constantly looking for ways that we can identify and help stop those 
those trafficking rings would be critical. Absolutely. You know, law enforcement only have so many resources. We got a lot going on in our communities across the United States. And so they don't, some, some like us, we don't have specialized individuals doing these investigations and they're very involved investigations. Just like Mandy said, you know, they're constantly moving, they're changing their technique. And if you don't have somebody specifically, you know, on those cases constantly and collecting that information and, and getting that trail you it's really hard to prove these cases and traffickers know that and they pick communities that are vulnerable in that area and so it's very key for not just law enforcement but also companies like yourself you know central payments to be involved in the fight because there are many different ways this is being facilitated if i am becky if i am listening to the podcast uh, or watching it and I'm not an aspiring Mandy Cooper, but I want to support the cause. Um, talk a little bit about where you would send somebody that says, this is an issue that's really important to me. And I may not be in Sioux Falls. Maybe I'm, maybe it doesn't feel that I should be supporting Call to Freedom because I have a local community. What's, what would you suggest for somebody who's, who either wants to support Call to Freedom um, or support something local, more local to them? Yeah. Um, well, Call to Freedom, our website is a great resource. Everything you need as far as opportunities to get involved, if that's giving, volunteering your time, um, is calltofreedom.org, www.calltofreedom.org. It's a great resource. But I do encourage people, um, and we're so grateful to everybody who gives to the cause in an amazing way, um, but get connected in your community as well. Um, find out what's happening. I think part of the problem is there aren't a lot of people doing this work and there isn't a lot of support for survivors um, in a lot of different communities. And so be a part of the solution. Um, find out what's happening in your community, if anything, and be a part of, you know, helping drive that, that this issue is coming to the forefront and needs to be discussed because our kids are vulnerable. The average age is 12 to 14. Um, you know, Christian family, good families are being victimized by this. I think some Something to realize is that the the demand drives the victims, and so the demand wants a blue-eyed, blonde-haired girl who's middle class. Guess what? That business person, the trafficker, is going to get. I'm going to get a blue-eyed, blonde-haired girl who's middle class and coming from a good family because that's what the buyer wants. Mm. And so what we forget is that it isn't one stereotype of a victim or even a perpetrator. They come in many different forms. And so getting educated on that and also learning to protect your children and protect your family and protect your community is very important. Yeah, this this issue, it pulls on a lot of emotions. Um, uh, you know, you can be sad, you can be really happy about the work that's getting done, and then you just be downright mad. Um, and that's that's the way I feel so often, especially when we see things that that we don't like to see and activities that we don't like to see. And you just want to, you, you just get angry. But then I think you can't focus on the anger. You just got to, you got to stay on top and say, stay positive and focus on prevention and focus on helping the victims and um, and just keep, never give up, I guess. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, I think this was a very, very, very important topic. And so um, I'm grateful that you came in and shared a little bit more, Becky, about what you guys are doing at Call to Freedom. And Mandy, thanks for spending um, your time educating um, us and your passion. <laughs> we are all on a mission to end it. Hence there's the there's one person here that's behind <clears throat> these t-shirts and she's sitting right over there. That's right. Everything. Uh, so 
your business gal through and through, but um, your heart is absolutely in in ending trafficking period and end of conversation. So, so I thank you both for carving out time and um, means a lot to the audience. Thank you for having us. Thank you. There you have it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of FinTech Brews and News. Keep up with all the content and cool stuff happening at Falls FinTech and Central Payments by checking out our website, our YouTube channel, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on our next episode. I'm Nikki Rohde. And I'm Trent Sorby. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers.